right, everyone. So welcome. Today is February 5th, 2010. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and excited to welcome today Dr. Marcus Favero, who is calling for our topic of um, psychiatric issues and mitochondrial disease from Mass General Hospital uh, in the Boston area. Welcome, Dr. Favero. very much. I wanted to just give him a brief introduction, and then Dr. Favero, feel free to fill in where I left off, and then we'll jump right into our topic for today. Uh, Dr. Favero is um, very involved and is a uh, clinical instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, as well as is um, seeing patients in several different areas in the Boston um, area affiliated with Massachusetts General um, Hospital. And he is board certified in child and adolescent as well as adult psychiatry. When Dr. Favero was introduced to me by another um, physician on our medical advisory board, you know, I was very excited because I hadn't met a psychiatrist who was interested and focused on mitochondrial diseases before. So it was really a pleasure to chat with Dr. Favero and you know, the questions that I had for him were really, which comes first? Are the, is the depression related to mitochondrial disease in many of these cases, or is it, you know, situational, as sometimes I think people interpret? And, and Dr. Favero's specific interest in mitochondrial diseases for kids and adults was really exciting to me, so I'm very excited to welcome you warmly, Dr. Favero, and um, hear what you have to say, so as is everyone who's calling today. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Christy. It's a great pleasure to be talking with uh, all of you today. And um, I am going to touch bases for about 20 minutes in the interface of mitochondrial disorders and psychiatry. I particularly will use the example of major depression today just to have a vehicle for us uh, to uh, start touching bases in one disorder. And I would uh, welcome uh, questions on any one of the psychiatric disorders that uh, have a uh, high comorbidity in with mitochondrial disorders. First thing that I would like to say today is mitochondrial disorders is a fairly new group of disorders for medicine. Uh, it's really a young group of disorders. You know, we first became aware in 1962 of the oxidative phosphorylation diseases. By 72, we had some correlation uh, of abnormal mitochondrial function with neurological disorders. And only in 1990, uh, we have major classes of mitochondrial DNA mutation syndromes screened. By 2000, 10 years ago, and this is a very, very, very uh, short period of time for medicine, uh, there was clinical recognition at high levels. Uh, at that point, it became clear that the prevalence of mitochondrial disorders is one in 5,000 live births, which makes these disorders the most prevalent metabolic disorders uh, affecting people and the most prevalent metabolic disorder with psychiatric meanings. Therefore, this became a high focus uh, in psychiatry in some substats. It's still not a group of disorders, considered uh, to be mainstream uh, for psychiatry, which poses a lot of problems. So, in a nutshell, the first uh, point that I want to make is that these new diagnostic entities uh, are very unknown for most psychiatrists. 
Psychiatrists know very little about mitochondrial disorders in general. I get a great deal of referrals from my own uh, colleagues in the department uh, because they have very little understanding of what these disorders are about, um, despite its high prevalence in the future years. And one of the uh, attempts of Mass Channel is to increase the education of the child psychiatry fellows on all metabolic conditions with high prevalence. Having said that, the environment seems to me is uh, still permeated with a great degree of under uh, underappreciation of what these disorders are, and particularly in which is most concerned. Sometimes this is, uh, mitochondrial disorders with psychiatric interface are wrongly managed and very, very often underdiagnosed. This is particularly important because many psychiatric medications are fairly dangerous uh, from the standpoint of treating mitochondrial disorders. Therefore, there is a need of high education of the medical community, and there is a need to inform the families that, not out of malice, the medical field still needs to advance in using the interface between neurology and metabolic conditions and psychiatry. So, for starters, what I would like to say that the general management of mitochondrial disorders should always involve a psychiatrist. The prevalence of psychiatric disorders is very high. The three pillars that uh, we know today help people with mitochondrial disorders can be helped by psychiatry. By psychiatry. So the, in helping people with decreasing metabolic stress, if you think about using major depression as just an example, it is as important to decrease metabolic stress from psychiatric situations uh, as it is to decrease it from infections, from dehydration, and from fever. If one is depressed, one is metabolically stressed. If a young child has hyperactivity from ADHD, one is metabolically stressed. If one patient has pervasive developmental disorder and is behaviorally agitated, that translates into metabolic stress. Therefore, treating psychiatric disorders is a priority in decreasing metabolic stress. Also, the second pillar of treatment of mitochondrial disorder is support of mitochondrial function by good nutrition, by vitamin use, and by cofactor supplementation. This is much more likely to occur if a patient is not depressed or if a family is not stressed. Finally, in the implementation and care of medical support in many levels, it is always to have the psychiatrist helping the other specialist not to be substitute psychiatrist. What I mean by that is the level of knowledge of uh, psychiatric management in, its all, in all its forms, from psychotherapy to medication management, is beyond the other specialists, neurologists, gastroenterologists, and primary care doctors, will have a much harder time managing psychiatric disorders in school populations uh, than, uh, than, uh, it, uh, than it seems at the first glance. So, how can a psychiatrist help? The first thing that there's two major things that a psychiatrist, psychiatrist can do. Make a good diagnosis, and mean, by that I mean measuring how much the symptoms, the psychiatric symptoms, and using the example of major depression, are primary, meaning primary from a psychiatric condition that would have happened no matter what presence or not of mitochondrial disorder, 
or if this diagnosis is psychosocial, psychosocially related, or is due to poor mitochondrial function. This is not a small task. It's an often in-between task. There is not a clear answer. And experience in dealing over and over with people with mitochondrial disorders helps a lot because the way our nosology, our way of diagnosing uh, psychiatric disorders was constructed originally was based on, on theoretically normally functioning individuals, people without medical illnesses. So the other part of the psychiatrist's brain in a team of specialists uh, dealing with mitochondrial disorder is to treat without causing harm. This is very essential. I try to teach my fellows at the Massachusetts General that the primary function in any psychiatric treatment involving a medical, potentially medically complicated patient is cause no harm. You will be doing a great deal of service to your patients if you don't create situations that are more harmful than good. And that's particularly true for mitochondrial disorder patients. I, I want to emphasize that psychiatric disorders um, are multiple mitochondrial disorders. Major depression is our example today. I'm glad to talk about others if you have questions. But what we normally see in the mitochondrial disorder clinic that's been formed at Mass Channel is a great amount of major depression, a great amount of bipolar disorder, a great amount of psychosis, some generalized anxiety disorder, a fair amount of young kids with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders. We also see uh, in the children particularly that are affected by more severe forms of mitochondrial disorder, a fair amount of behavior deregulation secondary to global developmental delay, aggressiveness, mobility. Um, and we see a fair amount of behavior deregulation secondary to pervasive developmental disorders, which is a group of disorders that include autism and Asperger's. That's our experience as a general at this point, a very broad uh, uh, range of psychiatric diagnosis. So let me move in from major depression as an example. We know the way we diagnose major depression today is by a set of criteria that should happen in adults within two weeks and a set or one week in children. So I'm going to start. All these criteria are part of the way we normally diagnose in people that don't have metabolic conditions. The first ones are more specific for people with mitochondrial disorder. So citing the cognitive criteria for major depression, I would like to say that those are the most useful separating what has been generated by, uh, my, uh, by major depression per se versus the low metabolic state of mitochondrial disorder. And those are low mood for two weeks in adults, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of hopelessness, suicidal ideation, lack of interest and pleasure. That set of criteria tends to help saying this is usually major depression. This is not secondary only to a metabolic state. Now, the confusing criteria or the less specific criteria are the low energy, the decreased concentration, the, the, the alterations of appetite and insomnia those more, uh, the different we call more physical criteria can happen in a mitochondrial disorder patient 
these five major depressions, they are criteria used today um, to diagnose major depression in general. Let me remind you once again, once the DSM-4 uh, was written, there was no consideration whatsoever for people that could have mitochondrial disorders. Therefore, uh, in classifying someone with major depression, you have criteria there that could be, uh, could be caused by the medical condition in itself. This doesn't mean that they should be disregarded. In fact, I'm saying the opposite, they should be well regarded. But that poses a diagnostic dilemma. Knowledge on how to interview people with mitochondrial disorders helps separate uh, how much of this is from a physical state and how much of this is from a uh, psychiatric state. The other part that I want to say here, the hard differentiation of primary uh, major depression and major de and uh, states that are secondary to a low metabolic rate from a met uh, mitochondrial disorder uh, stem also from the fact that emotional distress make mitochondrial disorders worse with or without depression, you understand? But <laughs> emotional stress is the lifeline, is the fuel, is, is what feeds into major depression. Therefore, emotional distress is not specific enough in diagnosing uh, depression in a person with mitochondrial disorder. What is highly useful is understanding what's coming along with it if there is a high degree of worthlessness, for example, and emotional distress, it is more likely that the person is suffering from major depression than from low energy production from a mitochondrial disorder. There is no rule of thumb. There is no set fixed uh, uh, ways of uh, making this assessment. But I will tell you, it is more likely that muscle weakness and low muscle tone and low stamina are secondary to primary energy production problems. Therefore, you know, having emotional distress and low stamina should not guarantee you uh, the usage of an antidepressant. Poor stamina and poor concentration are common in, in both conditions, and they don't differentiate well. So, it is a very complicated uh, uh, initial step. I'm trying to give a nuance uh, on the diagnostic front of perhaps what is uh, clear-cut disorder for general psychiatry. What I'm trying to say is it is not so clear-cut with mitochondrial disorders. Now, if we fulfill this first step and then we move to the idea, let's treat major depression and mitochondrial disorders. It is very, very important to understand that treatments, psychiatric treatments, are not medication treatments. And I want to emphasize this very clearly because we are in a in an atmosphere in which too many pills are prescribed too fast. Psychiatric treatment is a uh, much more broad concept that includes various types of uh, interventions. Psychodynamic therapy helps, you know, patients with mitochondrial disorder and major depression also have an unconscious mind. They do have internal conflicts, they have problems, they have interpersonal distress like anyone else. Um, Family therapy is very useful. We often see family systems in high distress. And one example is overprotectiveness of children that have mitochondrial disorder. That is not uh, absolutely useful. The family systems suffer with that, and that the psychiatric treatment is to intervene and help people be less protected when it's necessary. Some families have a fair amount of grief 
from distress and guilt, and that's also not very helpful. Uh, it is useful to interfere at that level. Cognitive behavior therapy is incredibly helpful. I have patients uh, that were greatly helped by the thought of, I am not my mitochondrial disorder, or I can live a good life despite my mitochondrial disorder. Uh, my depression is more controllable, in fact, because I have a mitochondrial disorder, and I know the etiology versus other people that don't even know why they have major depression. Uh, these interventions can be very life-saving and can change the prospect, and they may save you from the usage of a medication. Changes in lifestyle help a lot. Shorter worker work intervals, more rest, good heat control in classrooms are very, very useful. Most of all, decreased stress, particularly decreased expressed emotions. Expressed emotions is a fancy name to say families are fighting. Uh, are very useful. Uh, we've done a great deal to help uh, decrease stress in, uh, by advocacy at home, at school, and at, at work environments. Improving sleep are, is very useful. Those are treatments, interventions, and means that could save you medications in a, someone that is potentially prone to have very high rates of side effects. Having said that, you know, Great, uh, great deal of focus is given today to medications, and it is very important to use medications properly. They are life-saving. They are useful. And if well-managed, they can change the tide in, in one's life. What I would like to say for starters in here in the, in the medication front is that before you start a medication for a patient with a mitochondrial disorder, a doctor has to be very careful. This is a population that has a great degree of something called abnormal autonomic regulation. The autonomic nervous system controls our heart rate, controls our regulation of blood pressure. It controls our gut motility. Therefore, uh, this autonomic space can make you beat uh, your heart fast, have abnormal blood pressure, have abnormal gut motility with constipation and diarrhea. What I'm trying to say here is that attention to the presence or the absence of autonomic deregulation, for example, uh, should precede any decision uh, to give a psychiatric medication. Poor autonomic regulation is a risk factor for the use of psychiatric medications. Whenever I, w I am with my fellows in my clinic, I tell them you should collect a very long history, detailed history of how this person uh, blood pressure, heart rate, and gut function because medications that we will give to them will affect them profoundly. The second part is, as in any, any circumstance in, there is, in which there is the potential for multiple medical problems, a very detailed, long medical history should be collected with uh, great emphasis in understanding the cardiovascular system, the gastrointestinal uh, system, and the uh, renal and endocrine system, as well as the neurological system. What I mean by that is before you run to your bed and prescribe a medication, you should know if your patient with mitochondrial disorder has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which makes the heart uh, muscles very altered or has a arrhythmia or has an orthostatic blood pressure. It's very important to know if someone is cardiovascularly vulnerable. Uh, it's very important to know if someone has a history of seizures, 
uh, in the neurology front because there are many psychotropics that, in, that uh, increase the risk of seizures. It's very common for mitochondrial disorder patients to have high and low thyroid states. Uh, endocrinologically, that poses a risk by both mimicking major depression and creating states that are not really major depression but look like major depression. And when you give the medications to a hyperthyroid patient, for example, you are putting more risk on them. The message here on these last two uh, comments is make sure that uh, the medical part is well covered. After you did that and you explored in great detail if uh, you can intervene with less medication, then you run to, uh, then you start thinking about prescribing your medication. The other part is, even in the psychiatric front, it is my experience in my clinic treating many children with mitochondrial disorder that psychotropics and particularly antidepressants can cause a great degree of psychiatric side effects. I see kids prescribed with antidepressants and mitochondrial disorders having much more abnormal mood uh, results. They often get elevated, meaning they get hypomanic, they get irritable with SSRIs. It is not an all or nothing observation, meaning that there are many, many people helped by it, but it means to me that we need to be careful in the psychiatric thought. I'm not trying to discourage anyone from using antidepressants. I'm trying to uh, initiate a conversation that has to do with the following idea. If you're going to do it, do it carefully and do it thoughtfully because it is uh, very much useful and yet can be dangerous. There is a much higher incidence of headaches in kids with a mitochondrial disorder uh, taking SSRIs than the general population and I see much more GI and urinary side effects. So, how do I treat depression if it boils down to use the medication in mitochondrial disorder? I treat it with SSRIs, which, which are the mainstream uh, and the main focus of uh, use these days in the so-called population involved medical problems. It, those are the, the medications of choice also for kids and uh, they tend to be in a population involved medical problems very safe. Um, I use SSRIs incredibly slowly in people that have depression and mitochondrial disorders. And I tend to prefer medications in that group, which consists, this group consists of drugs such as Prozac, Fluvoxamine, Zoloft, Cymbalta, uh, Selexa, Lexapro, and I think I cover all of them. But what I tend to select are the lower potency agents, the agents that are uh, less strong, and the agents that have a shorter half-life. In other words, the agents that stay on your body for a shorter period of time after you, you once uh, a person discontinues the medication. I tend to shy away from Prozac, not because I don't like the medication. Uh, it's just that that's a very potent antidepressant with a very long half-life and a metabolite that lasts quite a while. So in uh, making choices, I tend to favor uh, uh, drugs that have less of a half-life. This is uh, no hard uh, rule. In fact, there are many, many instances in which I have used Prozac 
By the way, Prozac in a population that uh, uh, that has no metabolic conditions is the best uh, research drug for children with depression. Um, and yet, you know, one has to be careful. Um, in a perfect world, in a perfect situation, all cases having major depression would also receive therapy as they start receiving SSRIs. That's not often the case. Okay. So what are the medications that I tend to shy away in treating major depression uh, in mitochondrial disorder? I absolutely never, and I would discourage any psychiatrist to use it, um, I absolutely never use the so-called tricyclic antidepressants, antitriptyline, nortriptyline, and so on and so forth. The reason I don't do that is that those are the most uh, dangerous uh, medications in terms of creating this, uh, uh, alterations in the autonomic nervous system. They can be used. One has to be extra careful. Uh, the interesting overlap here is that the tricyclic antidepressants are very useful for headaches, and some of them are useful for secondary ADHD that cannot be controlled by other means. So if someone in the audience is taking a tricyclic antidepressant, antitriptyline or antitriptyline, that doesn't mean it's a mistake. It means, it means that one has to be more careful, and they are not the primary choice for treatment of depression in mitochondrial disorder. Equally, I, it's absolutely contraindicated to use MAL inhibitors, and I'm not going to even mention them because they have fallen out of uh, psychiatric usage, usage anyhow, even in people that don't have metabolic disorders. I try to avoid use albutrin, and which is bupropion, uh, because albutrin can lower seizure threshold in a population that has a higher risk of seizures than people without metabolic conditions. It is of common practice to avoid drugs that cause seizures more often. Um, also, albutrin in the presence of electrolyte imbalances is very dangerous, and that can happen with people with mitochondrial disorders. It can be used. It often is used when everything fails, but it's not a good first uh, uh, medication. I also tend to shy away from Efexor, which is Zelafaxin. Uh, first, because effects should not be given in children, and I mainly treat children, uh, but also because effects can cause hypertension. It can be used, yet again, it can be used, and in some cases of resistant depression, we use it for adults, but it's not the first choice. Remeron, metazapine can be used too. It is a little bit in the side of uh, creating uh, some... Uh, uh, increase in lipids in the blood, uh, not my favorite choice, and by far not the best choice for children, but, um, you know, uh, secondary choice. The take-home message on the medication front is that SSRIs remain our first choice, and particularly if one can take uh, care of going very slowly and choosing low-potency agents, agents that will be safe. Um, I normally follow patients very closely when I start an SSRI, though. Um, what do I do if the SSRI fail? It's a very common scenario in mitochondrial disorders with depression to switch, uh, to, to, have a failing, uh, to have a failing SSRI. What I do is after I started a low-potency SSRI and it fails, I, after one, after two months at least of treatment, I try to switch it for another SSRI 
of higher potency and a longer half-life. That's my first maneuver in general. I tend to avoid adding a second antidepressant on top of an SSRI in the, in the first failure, if that happens. Um, only later on, after I tried two or three SSRIs, I turned to combine medications. Now, it's very important to say here, when things are not going good in the medication front, you try to branch out to the other fronts. You try to increase the frequency of psychotherapy and supports. You try to, you try to advocate more uh, in the school front, and so on and so forth. It is a very big mistake, in my opinion, to start treating uh, stage 3 resistant depression uh, the way we treat it in the general population, which is by means uh, of adding lithium or thyroid hormone or atypical antipsychotics in the uh, mitochondrial disorder population. The reason I say that is at that point you have reached out to a number of medications that can cause very, very serious side effects and uh, you are walking away from the safer SSRIs. So, so what did I try to say today? The first thing is I want to highlight how new are this uh, group of disorders and how newly, newly recognized these disorders are for the psychiatric community. Uh, for the psychiatric community and the real world outside of tertiary uh, hospitals, this is a fairly new state of affairs. I also want to highlight that the presence of psychiatric diagnosis in mitochondrial disorders is very high and in fact, it's very good use to have a psychiatrist connected with a team of doctors that work with mitochondrial disorders. Using major depression as an example uh, today, I try to show you how complicated treatment can be and how many decisions one has to make and how much work one has to do in making sure that the autonomic nervous system and the medical conditions are properly contained. And even with that, one should proceed cautiously to cause no harm. That's the take-home message here if there is a psychiatrist listening to the audience. My recommendation is caution is the game uh, when there is a complicated medical condition underneath a psychiatric problem. How can psychiatrists help beyond prescribing medications? Uh, family support, psychotherapy and uh, advocacy and participating in multidisciplinary efforts and by all means trying to offload the psychiatric treatment from the neurologist, the gastroenterologist, and so on and so forth. So I am going to stop at this point and I'm going to uh, stop with the idea that, you know, I use major depression. I'm uh, uh, open to, please, if you have questions about bipolar disorder, psychosis, generalized anxiety disorder, attention deficit disorder, or behavior dysregulation, please feel free to ask me. Um, um, and I hope this was useful. Thank you Dr. very much. Dr. Severa, this, this was so useful and such an excellent, I think, overview. And truly, I have, I have never heard such a, a great discussion about specifically the mitochondrial disease implications with those diseases. And I think that using depression as an example was very appropriate because it is something that um, I think affects many of our patients and many adult patients express their distress 
with um, battling these symptoms of depression. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I find that the adult patients are very good at verbalizing what they feel, and it helps to translate what the kids who are not able to verbalize um, what, what they're feeling. So you have to assume that this is happening in the child population as well as the adult population. Um, so I'm going to unmute the lines and sure. allow people to ask questions. And okay. you just did a fantastic job. Thank I'll you. remind everyone before I do that that if you are in a place like you're outside or you have background noise, dogs, kids, you know, whatever, you can use star six to mute and unmute your own line <laughs> just so that it stays um, clear for everyone to be able to hear. I'll also remind everyone that, you know, Dr. Favero is generously offering his time to ask questions. So please phrase your question in a way that it can um, speak to as many people as possible while still answering your question. So bear with me. You're going to hear a couple beeps, and we'll get uh, get some questions going. One second. Sure. All right. Everyone is unmuted now, so we can ask some questions. So what, what we'll do is we're just in a virtual classroom here, so we'll just take turns, and when you ask a question, I'll just briefly um, introduce yourself. So Dr. Favero has an idea who he's speaking to. So uh, who would like to ask the first question? Hi, Dr. Favero. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for that wonderful um, presentation. My name is Sue. I'm from New York. It's my uh, older son that was um, diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease, and it, it has affected his cognitive functioning. Almost like he has an attention deficit disorder. And in, in your review of the medications, um, you didn't address anything like the use of Ritalin or any drugs in that category. Do you ever do you ever do that if the symptoms are of like an attention deficit disorder type of presentation? Sure, absolutely. Are, mm -hmm. uh, are they are they safe to use or? So uh, uh, the first uh, way of uh, starting answering your question is there's a range of mitochondrial disorders and a uh, spectrum of severity that uh, can go very wide. Um, yes, I use stimulants. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the stimulants for the treatment of ADHD um, uh, are uh, reasonably safe provided that one does the homework before. Mm -hmm. The two things that I want to say to you in the homework phase is one has to have a clear view of how severe is a mitochondrial disorder. Mm -hmm. One has to have a clear view that the cognitive alteration that a patient with mitochondrial disorder has is really related to the attention and, uh, and the focusing systems of the brain rather than to the other focus. So mm -hmm. in, making the, in, in, in working through the process of diagnosing attention deficit disorders in mitochondrial situations, you have to make uh, a little bit of, uh, you have to do more lab work than the average population in saying that this is related to attention pathways. In other words, you want to make sure that these are not primary learning disabilities or a cognitive state because uh, you have uh, uh, you have uh, a non-territorial stroke on the brain from uh, mitochondrial disorder. So uh, you have to kind of uh, diagnose it uh, to the extreme. That's what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. and make sure that you don't have neurological comorbidities that decrease attention. After mm -hmm. that, one has to do the cleaning of the, the clearance of the cardiovascular system 
which is making sure that one has a good uh, cardiovascular capacity. These stimulants for treatment of ADHD uh, are uh, cardiovascularly active. They do increase blood pressure. They alter uh, uh, pulse rate. They make your heart beat fast by a margin of usually 5%. They cause headaches more frequently. Uh, they cause headaches. They have uh, effects on the GI system. They are incredibly useful. I have many kids with mitochondrial disorders taking stimulants. Uh, it's the quality of the psychiatric care that determines how safe they are, you understand? Mm -hmm. And uh, then the humble approach of going very slowly with the dose and consulting with your colleagues working with you, making sure that the neurologists know that you're gonna what that you're gonna do, what you're gonna do, and that, that we will increase the risk of seizures, uh, that uh, will create potentially a situation for your cardiologist if you have one. Mm -hmm. So in answering your question, it's not a contraindication. Like depression, you have uh, special uh, work to do. It is useful and it's, it can be quite uh, interesting because as you improve one's capacity to focus in school or in work, you decrease stress. You know, as if you are attentive and working well, you will feel less stress and you can experience improvement. Also, stimulants can be slightly antidepressants. Uh, and they improve stamina and energy. They are used uh, for cancer patients, for example, taking chemotherapy. So it's a, a group of medications that should not be disregarded. It should be respected as a, as a useful and, uh, and uh, not only for the attention deficit, but secondarily support of depression and even energy. I wouldn't use that primarily to increase energy, but it's a very nice side effect to have in a population that uh, can uh, can have ADHD. ADHD is actually fairly frequent in mitochondrial disorders. Mm -hmm. I hope okay. I answered your question, Sue. So. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh -huh. Dr. Cordero? Yeah? Uh, um, my son has bipolar disorder, uh -huh. and um, I had gone to a NARSAT presentation. Uh, I don't remember the uh, researcher's name, but he's at Harvard. He might be in McLean. And he talked about imaging um, studies that I had done, mm -hmm. and they found that the distribution of mitochondria and the shape of mitochondria were different in bipolar uh, yep. people. Yeah. And he was doing a study on L-carnitine and alpha-lipoic acid, yeah. and he was about to start that. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about supplements in general for bipolar patients and those in particular. I do, uh, and uh, I think, uh, first of all, if it's a uh, uh, deep bipolar disorder, uh, one has to treat it by the regular means of treating bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is a very dangerous psychiatric condition uh, that uh, has an unfortunate uh, effect called tiny. The more manic cycles you have, the more vulnerable you are, independent uh, of uh, mitochondrial disorders. Uh, many, many people uh, in the community are, are becoming more aware of uh, mitochondrial disorders in the bipolar disorder population. In general, the consensus is supplementation, uh, the same way that we do, in the, that the neurologists do uh, in the general population is useful. Uh, I tend to leave the decisions over supplementation to my colleagues, and I tend to focus on what I know the best, which is psychiatric medication 
and not causing harm through my medications. Mm-hmm. But the consensus, yes, it's useful. Uh, uh, what I would urge you to think about, though, is that should not be the only, if, if it's true bipolar type 1 disorder, that should never be the only psychiatric treatment in place. That's not enough to hold our mania down at this point. We don't have the technology in terms of uh, cell functioning and mitochondrial functioning to improve oxidative phosphorylation at that point. Well, this is an adjunct, of course, to this medication. You mentioned about the, the risk of uh, atypical antipsychotics. Very dangerous drugs, sir. But, but for bipolar as well? Because my son has been on that for, um, for Abilify for, for, for some years now. Yeah, here's the problem. It's a risk-benefit equation. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, one has major depression, simple, and, uh, uh, and uh, the usage of uh, atypical antipsychotics is to decrease negative cognitions and mild paranoia from major depression, I would, I would not advise that. But if one is having full-blown manic cycles, okay, with very high aggressiveness and high risk of suicide and acting out behaviors, you have a totally different correlation of risk-benefit, and therefore, an informed decision should be made. When I prescribe atypical, and I do atypical in mitochondrial disorder, mostly we don't have a better therapy. I make sure that I do a series of laboratory and, uh, and, uh, and other workups for the patient, and I also inform the parents that there is plenty of evidence that the atypical drugs are in fact pretty dangerous for the central nervous system uh, in terms of lipid deposition and decreasing metabolic rate, even in normal people. It's very likely that the atypicals are not very good for mitochondrial disorder. Risperdonis uh, particularly uh, being uh, regarded as a dangerous medication these days. Abilify less so, but what I would like to say to you in this call is uh, it's very important to measure what is really bipolar disorder and what's the risk of the bipolar disorder. Uh, someone hospitalized 20 times and uh, who has had uh, uh, pretty serious suicide attempts has to take an atypical, unfortunately. Um, the other options are not very good. Your son should never take Depakote, by the way. Uh, that is very, very dangerous and can even kill him. Um, but, you know, that's the problem is that armamentarium for bipolar disorder tends to be a very toxic group of uh, medications. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I cut in there, too? I, I'm Beth, and I also have bipolar. Huh? And so this is actually very helpful for me to hear, so I'm glad that this question was asked. Um, I've, all of the me- uh, medications that you've mentioned that are contraindicated or not good, I have been on pretty much all of them, some of them before I was diagnosed and some even after I was diagnosed with the mitochondrial disease. So I'm I'm pretty frustrated that I've gone, you know, I've been on harmful medications. Seroquel is considered um, atypical, right? Absolutely. Seroquel is a low-potency atypical antipsychotic. Well, I will say right now I am down to just Lamictal. as a use for the bipolar and also used to prevent seizures from um, MELAS. Uh-huh. And I, I actually have had less mood swings and less mixed episodes since just being on Lamictal. You have? I, ha- I have had less. 
I have just gone down to Lamictal only. Yeah, that's very interesting. What's your name again? Beth. Beth. Beth, that's interesting. You have Milas? I have Milas, yes. Yeah. See, this is a clear example of probably a more neurological scenario in which you're taking an anticonvulsant and you're experiencing some improvement, you know, uh, uh, with a, a specific disorder that has a very high neurological correlate. Um, I'm not surprised that Lamictal is used. Well, you have to proceed carefully with Lamictal. I'm sure you heard about the, ra the risk of rash. Yeah, I've been on it for um, three or four years now, so and I've just been on the, uh, the same dose for that long. Yeah, but when I stopped finally know. taking the Effector and got myself off of that and stopped the Seroquel, mm -hmm. I've had less mixed episodes and less mood swings. I, I can't say that I still don't have them, but they're not severe. Yeah. See, it's actually it's a high-potency antidepressant, a very, very powerful medication, uh, perhaps uh, as powerful or more powerful in different ways than Prozac. I tend to avoid effects in people that have bipolar diagnosis. And I, my psychiatrist, even though he knew I had the mitochondrial disease, had me on that for years, I finally took myself off of it, weaned off, and I mean, I'm so glad I did yeah. because I do feel better. And I, I wanted to add one more thing just in general that it's, it's saddening for me that to know that I would say for most of us on this phone call, we don't have access to a physician like, like you with your qualifications that have a background in psychiatry and metabolic disease. So for me, at least, I, I right now do not have a psychiatrist. My primary care doctor prescribes my Lamictal. So I feel more comfortable with her prescribing Lamictal than going to a psychiatrist who's going to start wanting me to take this and that and the other medications, like pretty much stuff that you just said are contraindicated and causing me more harm. Uh, yeah. So frustrating. Yeah, no, I think unfortunately, and I'm, this is no criticism, and I think I have to uh, say this very humbly, uh, the psychiatric community lags behind in knowledge uh, and, uh, of, uh, mitochondria, of any metabolic disorder. Uh, it's the nature of the practice of psychiatry these days. What I would uh, suggest, if you have a good neurologist, uh, uh, perhaps there are local resources from psychiatrists that uh, participate more in these groups that uh, might be uh, uh, better uh, uh, equipped to help you. You know, it is important to have a psychiatrist. Um, like I said before, it's not only about giving medications, you know, it's about uh, providing a network of services. What we try to do, at least with children in the general, is uh, when people get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, just to mention one serious disorder, uh, is that we really try to change their lives around. Uh, it's about uh, advocacy in the school front. It's about uh, finding a good therapist that uh, we will start to understand what's going on and work with our team, you know, in uh, providing good service. Uh, it's also about heavily informing the patient and the parent about their options and the fact that uh, one of the cures is to uh, assume that there is a, a need to uh, connect uh, the other providers that are participating with the people that have an interesting hypochondria disorder. Most often we get uh, psychiatrists in the other end of the line that are actually very eager to hear and, uh, and other specialists. Uh, we have a number of kids uh, 
from the different area of Massachusetts that are now being treated locally that we just advise at a distance, you know, and that cooperation is very, very useful. Thank you for your information. Dr. Rivera? Yes. Can you give some examples of what less potent and shorter half-life SSRIs are? Selecta is a very uh, mild uh, antidepressant in terms of half-life and potency. It does have side effects that are unique. Uh, they t that one particularly tends to be very well tolerated in younger children because it can be discontinued uh, fast. Prozac is the one that has the longest half-life. It has a very, very powerful secondary metabolite that lasts a lot, a lot of time in your body. And that's uh, considered a high-potency, long-acting antidepressant. Uh, in between Selexa and Prozac, you have drugs such as Zoloft and Phloboxamine that uh, fall right in the middle. Lexapro, which is a second-generation drug uh, that was developed out of Selexa to decrease its side effects, tends to be potent milligram per kilogram wise. I tend to avoid that one, but. I would say Lexapro, for some reason, is very well tolerated in, uh, in uh, particularly young women, you know. Uh, I, I was, I took a small dosage of Lexapro recently uh, for a short time and had some muscle weakness where I, I couldn't get off the toilet and twice this happened to me. Then I stopped it and I was okay. Uh-huh. I I heard that one. I don't have a clear explanation of that other than say to you, this is a potent medication that has uh, as any potent antidepressant uh, as as in Prozac. Lexapro is incredibly potent milligram per kilogram uh, milligram wise for effect. Uh, it has the capacity of deranging other systems. It uh, when I hear this, I take it. Exactly as you said, very likely it was a laxapro. Uh, there are other factors that could contribute, and there is a correlation factor that uh, one has to be humble to say we don't know everything that goes on in the body at a given moment. So other things could have contributed, but if the laxapro did that, stop it, and uh, don't take it. You know, or or if you need it. All the SSRIs can do that, even the low potency ones. Uh, I tend to not start it right here or on Let me just remind everybody that we can hear you, so use your star six to mute your line if you need to. You were saying. I'm sorry, I barely can hear you, ma'am. I know I can't hear you either, and I've about rammed this uh, phone uh, into my ear, and I've only heard about every five or six words. Uh, I have uh, Mido. I think I began with it maybe in my late teens or early 20s, and it just gradually progressed up until I got to where in 1980, I knew something desperately was wrong with me, and I started trying to find out what it was, and I was told that I had a drug addiction uh, by several doctors, rheumatologists, um, uh, uh, neurosurgeons, neurologists, 
and because I I was in so much pain uh, from my head to my toes for one thing, and then was getting where I had absolutely hardly energy at all. It's Caroline, Caroline, so yes. just for the for where I bet a lot of people appreciate that they feel the same the same way. I I do want to let Mark Dr. Favero. Um, he, he's wrapping up. So why don't you just jump right to your question for us? Well, I just would like for you to give me a phone number or an address so that I can get in touch with someone that knows something. I really have no one to help me with this uh-huh. down here in South Georgia. South and Georgia? Uh, I, have, <laughs> I have to look. Uh, there are actually some very excellent uh, psychiatrists in South Georgia. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Ashrock is in South Georgia, I believe, and uh, I believe Dr. Macias, uh, but I have to look. Uh, Chrissy, I, I believe uh, I'm listed in, uh, in your website, and there's a phone number for me. Is that correct? That's correct, and yeah. uh, and when we post the summary as well, then we'll we'll link to that information. So, uh, Caroline, uh-huh. this, this is Christy Balsells, and if you or anyone on the call would like to email me with your questions, then I can communicate those with Dr. Favero, and we can try to help get you some answers as well. You don't have a phone number or an address. I don't email. You know what, Caroline, the the phone number where you can reach us is easy. It's 888-MITO-ACTION, and in numbers, that's 648 
primarily uh, due to mitochondrial disorder. Uh, in my experience, a great deal of it can come from the disease itself. Uh, then the second thing uh, that happens very frequently is that uh, uh, usage of psychotropic medications often make it worse. Uh, and um, and uh, a proper workup of sleep disorders is not done. Uh, so it begins with uh, what's the symptomatology before medications were given to you uh, in the collection of history of insomnia and how it developed. Then it, uh, it comes second with like, is this connected to a psychiatric disorder or is this um, primarily a mitochondrial dysfunction? And then thirdly, there is a number of uh, disturbances of sleep that are primarily disconnect and, and disconnected from psychiatric problems uh, and from mitochondrial disorder. Uh, insomnia is a difficult area. Um, one has to collect a very long history. In my experience, primary dysfunction of mitochondrial disorder causes insomnia. Then psychotropics used uh, too fast make it worse and then you have the psychiatric diagnosis underneath boiling, low-grade depression causing insomnia, anxiety causing insomnia, and so on and so forth. Uh, the third, the, the, what we very rarely go to is a sleep study. Uh, we, uh, we tend to, whenever we have a chief complaint of major insomnia, of insomnia what we tend to do is uh, work out if there is a psychiatric condition. If everything fails, I do send people to sleep studies at the general. We do have a sleep laboratory, and we try to record an EEG during that sleep study because sometimes we can uh, we can uh, pick up a great degree of uh, brain metabolic distress through abnormal electrical activity during sleep, and the management of that is very different than the general population. It is really drugs that medications that would decrease. Uh, electrical activity. Did I answer your question? Uh, to some degree, I've been to a sleep study. Um, the, the doctors had a couple of different doctors interpret the results and they were very confused. There was a, a lot of brain activity. I had no REM sl uh, sleep in one sleep study. Um, uh, I have restless leg syndrome. Uh -huh. um, uh, Are you taking any psychiatric medications? Uh, right now, I just started on Effexor about a week ago. I had been prescribed Trazodone, and it was terrible. I had restless leg syndrome worse. Well, it, it immobilized me almost completely. My muscles just froze up. Yeah, that's um, the thing that I said to you. Sometimes the psychotropics. Yeah. Used wrongly, and when they are used wrongly, you have a primary sleep disturbance that is made more manifest. But tell me again, that you, you have restless legs. Yes, and um, I, I can't think of anything else in the sleep study. They did determine that I should use a VPAP. Uh, that doesn't seem to make a, a big difference. Uh, you said a CPAP. A VPAP. A VPAP. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It um, it, it doesn't, I don't think so. Um, insomnia has been with me most of my life. I'm 76. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, who also has a mitochondrial uh, uh, diagnosis, she has 
struggles with insomnia, too. And I have been on different antidepressants and off for various times. The insomnia doesn't seem to pay attention to that. There's times that I, I need to take a 10 milligram Ambien, and there's times that I don't need to take anything. And it might go for two weeks that I don't need anything and two weeks that I do. Uh-huh. It's, it's variable. Yeah. If uh, uh, Let me make a comment. Uh, you, uh, If you were in management in Massachusetts by one of our psychiatrists in the partner system, the way I would uh, ask them to proceed is hand you my way. Uh, you are out of the league of the general psychiatrist. Uh, where are you? Uh, um, north of Detroit, Michigan. Detroit. Uh, I think what I would like you to do, let me try to locate the psychiatrist for you in your area. We also have people that train at the general that uh, have uh, marched their way to Michigan. Um, it is uh, more complicated uh, than it fits here. Um, you are 76. You have a very powerful primary disorder which seems to have uh, several components uh, among them restless leg syndrome. Um, it is uh, more likely that you will need a sleep specialist connected with a good psychiatrist than the general population. So this is really level three psychiatric care, a major hospital. Uh, using community resources will likely make it worse. I don't want to scare you, but um, uh, sleep, uh, the corner of sleep disorders and mitochondrial disorder is by far, uh, if, you, if you think about mitochondrial disorders as new, if you think about psychiatric disorders and mitochondrial disorders being even newer than that, then you, you kind of like have an idea of uh, how, uh, how, how little resources we have. But sleep is particularly notorious as, uh, as something that's out of the reach of the regular resources out there. My advice to you is a uh, uh, consultation with uh, services that have both the sleep department and the mitochondrial disorder uh, working uh, potentially together. I haven't been I'm near a couple major hospitals, Henry Ford uh-huh. Hospital and Beaumont Hospital, uh-huh. and I haven't been able to find a mitochondrial Community. specialist anyplace. Yeah, I know that's a very sad reality. I'm sorry about that, and uh, that's perhaps why we're sitting all together today. Uh, there is a need for If that. you have any suggestions for doctors in the Detroit area, I'd be thrilled to hear them. <laughs> oh, abso- absolutely, and uh, if you want to pay me a visit in Massachusetts, I'll be glad to take a look at you. Okay. I don't know if I could do that, but thank you. <laughs> well, you're officially invited. Uh, right. so Dr. Rivera, thank you so much. Okay. We really, on behalf of everyone that you've helped, we really appreciate your time, and you have just been wonderful. So thank you so much, and uh, please have a wonderful weekend. Pleasure. Good luck, guys, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, bye-bye. All right, so uh, everyone, I, I'm sure that you um, have a lot to think about, as I do, from Dr. Favera's presentation. I'm going to end our recording, um, with, and then we can stay on to uh, chat for a few more minutes. In closing, I did just want to mention that the topic for March, coming up on the 5th of March, is uh, the compounding pharmacy and how they can help with the mitococcial. It's just something that we revisit every year see if there's anything new as well as to have a chance to really ask questions of the compounding pharmacist and 
potentially help you find a compounding pharmacist who can help you with your supplements and talk about insurance coverage and what goes in it and which brand is the best and all of those kinds of things that are in consideration for the CoQ10 and um, other supplements that are part of the mitococktail. That will be on March 5th. And as well, I want you to just make sure that you know about the support groups that go on on Fridays. All of you are welcome, as well as others. Please do help me spread the word because we have those in an ongoing way, and really there's there's no agenda other than to provide a means for people to be able to informally have a chance to talk to one another and meet when you're in the in the same boat. And so next Friday is the support group for newly diagnosed, that's adult patients as well as parents of children. The third Friday of the month is designated for parents of children, and that's just a general support group. Again, great time to share resources. And the fourth Friday is for adult patients. And same teleconference number that you used for today and same time as well. So let me end our recording, and then we can chat for a few more minutes. Bear with me. You'll hear a couple beats. <laughs> 